Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As you know, this podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. The Agora Network is a meeting of the minds, a gathering of interesting people doing interesting podcasts that have pooled their interesting resources in the furtherance of interest. If you would like a taste of what we can do when we get together, you might want to check out the Agora podcast feed. This month, we have just released a show on electoral reform, where myself and several other handsome and erudite podcasters take a really deep dive into the American electoral system, its background, its strengths and weaknesses, and ways it might be changed. If you're interested in hearing the show, check out agorapodcastnetwork.com. It's where the learning lives. Closer to home, we have three new donors to thank. Listener Shabtai made a secure PayPal donation, and informs me that Shabtai is the Hebrew name for the planet Saturn. Therefore, he is requested to be known as Shabtai, Lord of the Rings. Slipping under the wire, I just received a secure PayPal donation from a listener who wishes to be known as Triggs the Mighty. We also have a new Patreon donor. Patron David shall hereafter be known as David the Well Hydrated. Thank you to these and all my donors. If you'd like to join David, Triggs, and Shabtai, please head over to the show page, wittenberg-to-westphaliapodcast.weebly.com, and go to the store page. Your money will help me with research materials, and help pay for my time and Andrew's time as well. There's an explanation of all the neat rewards that we now have to offer on the website, so I do encourage you to check it out. If you're not looking to donate, the website is still a great place to connect with me, and yet some interesting background information on the show. You can also find links on the show page to our Facebook and Twitter accounts. But let's say that you've already been to the website and the Facebook page, and you want to do more to help the show, but you're not quite ready to offer financial support. Maybe, like Shabtai and Triggs, you're still working out what regnal name you want. Well, that's fine. It's also super important that we get the word out about the show to new listeners. So if you aren't up for making a donation, or if you've donated already but you have a few minutes to spare, head over to the iTunes page for the show and leave a written review. It helps us reach more people, which helps us grow the show. Five-star reviews are very appreciated. One last note. I've gotten in the stickers and postcards, which I want to send out to thank all my previous donors. If you've donated in the past, please email me at wittenberg at gmail.com or message me through the Facebook page. Please do not post your address publicly, but I really want to get this stuff out to people. I think they turned out amazing, and I think you will all really like them. And I just really want to thank the people who took a risk and donated to me without me offering anything in support other than my show. So I really appreciate that. Anyway, on with said show. 
You may ascertain how great was King Henry's prudence and how great his knowledge from this. Namely, that he appointed the most accomplished and observant of his sons as king. For there loomed, O most prudent king, a chance for the extinction of your whole people, had not such a great successor to the royal office sprung up. For this reason, we composed a poem of praise for both. You, the very one who is accustomed to overcome impious peoples by brutal war, we just learned, O king, how great ruination you gave to the populace by your own death. Let the horde, suddenly orphaned of its dear king, now stop weeping when another arises to be venerated the world over. A son similar to the famous father, King Otto, who will pursue the nations with great authority and bring blessed peace. Whatever ended with Henry's demise, this one offers back to the people by his high birth, kind and gentle and patient towards the holy, virulent and hard and rabid towards the savage. There are wars for you to fight, Otto, with several enemies by which, bringing back a name known in all the galaxies, you shall tread with your feet over the globe. Wars which the late shining boat pursues, and to which the noble Hesper gives its name. Lucifer is called back, and, hurrying, there arises glittering Eos. Quote from Liutprand of Cremona's Deeds of Otto, as read by Xander of the Reconsider podcast. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs And this is episode 29 Otto, the pretty good under the circumstances Last episode, we discussed the Eastern Franks in their Age of Disunity. From the death of Arnulf, the Eastern Franks lived through a generation of chaos. The kings, Louis the Child and Conrad, were not able to secure their rule, either through immaturity or lack of support, and into this vacuum the Magyars poured. Conrad, mortally wounded by a rival for the throne, handed off his claim to Henry the Fowler, who was able to reassert his power in East Francia in a series of successful campaigns against severely exhausted opponents. Ultimately, Henry was faced by the fury of the Magyars, and was forced to temporarily buy peace. But Henry used the purchased time to reform his army, fortify his duchy, and ultimately he was able to defeat the Magyars in the Battle of the Riyadh. Today we will discuss Henry's son, Otto I, credited by many as the first Holy Roman Emperor, or King of the Germans. But both terms are anachronistic at this point, used by historians merely for convenience. Still, it was Otto that would set in motion the events that would bring these entities into full fruition. Otto was crowned on July 2nd, 936, as Regis Francorum Orientalium, that is, King of the Eastern Franks. His coronation was designed to project an image of unity and legitimacy, with the dukes of the realm serving as his personal servants during the ceremony, and with a lavish anointment conducted by a bishop. Otto made a point of wearing clothing in the Frankish style, rather than in the Saxon one, to help associate himself more strongly with his kingdom as a whole. 
This was a marked contrast with the very Saxon Henry the Fowler, who refused clerical anointment in favor of a simple acclamation by a diet. Having garbed himself literally and figuratively in the trappings of Frankish royalty, Otto sought to take a much more direct hand in the government of his kingdom beyond Saxony than his more immediate predecessors had done. Harkening back to the way Charlemagne had ruled, Otto began placing family members and key allies in charge of major strategic locations and tr large tracts of land. Though Otto usually waited until the person who had previously owned the territory had died or committed an act of treason, these appointments were often made in the teeth of opposition from family members or clan groups who thought that they had a claim to the territory. Usually, if a powerful clan had a claim to the territory, Otto would put someone from that clan in charge, but often not the clan leader. This ensured that the new office holder was less powerful and had at least some allegiance to Otto beyond the clan, but also that the clan wouldn't go into open revolt over it. If a position was truly vacant, due to a family dying out or due to an occupant being guilty of treason, Otto would put his relatives in charge directly. In such a way, Otto hoped to create an aristocracy loyal to him, or at least create a situation where power was not completely concentrated in a few hands. It is worth saying that the stem duchies were never as monolithic as they are often portrayed. Still, these policies would halt and begin to push back what had been a genuine process of consolidation. But of course, these policies annoyed people, and not everyone was overawed by the military Otto had inherited from Henry the Fowler, and there were a few people with more personal grievances. So it was that, by the end of the first year of his reign, the carefully projected image of unity would be tarnished. The trouble started in 937, when Arnulf the Bad died. Arnulf's son rose in revolt against Otto, refusing to honor the peace treaty Henry the Fowler and Arnulf the Bad had signed years before. Otto crushed this revolt and saw off a Magyar raid that came through at about that same time, but while he was thus preoccupied, a legal dispute broke out between Ebenhard, Duke of Franconia, and a minor Saxon noble whose name you don't need to know. This noble refused to swear allegiance to anyone other than Otto, despite having lands that were arguably in Franconia, and so Duke Ebenhard went and took the man's castle, killed everyone inside, and burned it down. Now, Ebenhard was not just a duke. He was in many ways Henry the Fowler's most important ally, the brother of King Conrad, who had passed up the throne in favor of Henry. Ebenhard should have been a firm ally, but Otto and Ebenhard had already locked horns over some key appointments, and now the man wronged by Ebenhard had been wronged in the act of declaring his loyalty to Otto. After Otto returned from Bavaria, he summoned Ebenhard to court to judge the case of the burned castle. Otto found against Ebenhard, and ordered his father's old friend to parade through the streets of town carrying a dead dog, supposedly in extreme humiliation for the time. Ebenhard was a bit upset by this. He discussed his concerns with a number of good friends, and they decided to ally with Otto's older but illegitimate half-brother Thenkmar, in a rebellion against Otto's rule. Unfortunately for them, their plans leaked out, and Otto was able to crush the revolt by confronting and flipping the key allies one by one. Thankmar was assassinated, in a church no less, but the other members of the Frankish clan were welcomed back with a playful wink and a warning. Ebenhard did not take the warning. Ebenhard came up with a new plan, a great plan, a cunning plan. He would rebel again, and he would topple Otto, and replace him with Otto's younger brother, Henry. Okay, it was basically the same plan, but with a new brother. 
It was not a very creative plan. The big initial difficulty with Ebenhard's plan was that he could no longer rely on his former allies. They had been flipped by Otto. So Ebenhard needed some new allies. Now, Ebenhard had one interesting geographic advantage here. Franconia, his duchy, was near the border with western Francia. Getting help from a king to help him fight against another king was probably a good plan. He didn't have a king the first time round, so maybe that was the problem. But Ebenhard needed a way to get the western Frankish king on side. Now, as we've discussed, the duchy of Lorraine was directly on the border between the two kingdoms, and was an area that the two kingdoms had been squabbling over off and on for a few decades now. So Ebenhard went and convinced the Duke of Lorraine to join the revolt. Ebenhard must have been a pretty convincing guy, because the Duke of Lorraine was actually Otto's brother-in-law. However, Ebenhard pulled it off. Suddenly, Ebenhard's rebellion became a very attractive prospect for the Western Frankish king, as the Duke of Lorraine promised to switch his fealty to the Western Frankish king. The king of Western Francia pledged his support, and the revolt was launched. But, as we've discussed, Western Francia was not exactly the home of peace and tranquility and power at this point in time. Louis IV of Western Francia was actually a pretty weak king, and had only recently freed himself from the overbearing regency of his most powerful duke, Hugh the Great, head of the Robertian family. Of course, Otto's first move here was to ally with Hugh. Louis probably should have seen this coming. In any case, the alliance with Hugh immediately put the rebels on the defensive. So, Otto and Hugh invaded Lorraine, and after a year or two of skirmishing, the two sides fought a pitched battle, at which a combined force of Western Franks and rebels was crushed by Otto and Hugh. This was something of a disaster for the rebellion. Otto's brother Henry was captured, Ebenhard was killed, and most critically for Louis, the Duke of Lorraine died in the retreat. So now there were no leaders for the rebellion, and the figurehead was captured. Without the rebel leaders, there was no real political cover for Louis's involvement, and he would have to go home without taking possession of any territory in Lorraine. But wait! The Duke of Lorraine had a wife, Otto's sister. She was surely allowed to inherit her husband's lands. And wouldn't you know it, she was newly single, and in one of the many castles Louis's troops had already occupied. So Louis married the dead Duke's widow, Otto's sister, remember, and retained possession of Lorraine in her name. Podcast footnote. Two things here. First, I should just say that some chroniclers spin this as Otto wanting to make peace and marrying off his sister, who was newly single, to his enemy uh, as a way to cement the alliance. I don't really think that fits the timeline of this situation, and not all the chroniclers repeat that claim, so I just went with this version, but there is another version out there. Second, Otto's brother Henry was imprisoned by Otto for a while, but was ultimately forgiven and given Lorraine of all places. Before he could take possession, Henry conspired to try and assassinate Otto, but was foiled. Henry went back to jail, but was again pardoned and was given land in Bavaria. Henry was known to history as Henry the Quarrelsome. We will hear from Henry again. End podcast footnote. So even though the rebellion was more or less finished, Lorraine was taken and Otto's sister married by Louis in all likelihood somewhat against her will. Louis may have felt fairly smug, while Otto may have been despondent. What a what was an Eastern Frankish king with the most powerful army in Europe to do? Oh right, the army thing. And so Otto and Hugh's armies invaded West Francia and pretty much ran amok from 939 to 941. Countrysides were pillaged, villages burned, towns taken. Otto and Hugh gradually took back Lorraine as well as big swaths of western Francia. 
Louis maybe did not fully think through his plan. Eventually, an army under Otto failed in a siege of Laon, and he headed home. Otto had gotten what he wanted, Lorraine, and he had eliminated the threat of rebellion from his western border. Meanwhile, the Slavs of the Empire had revolted with the aid of the Danes, so he couldn't afford to expend more energy in the west. And so, Otto bid adieu to Hugh the Great, wished his sister luck in her forced marriage, and headed back east. The rebellion Otto faced was actually a fairly serious affair, known as the Great Slavic Uprising. His kingdom's eastern and northern borders were engulfed in a massive rebellion by a diverse group of Slavic peoples, aided in some cases by the Danes. Many of these peoples had been incorporated into the empire by Henry the Fowler, and they took advantage of Henry the Quarrelsome's rebellion to themselves rise in revolt. In fact, at one point an army under Henry and a Slavic army were both moving into Saxony at the same time. Otto was able to forestall Henry diplomatically long enough to drive back the Slavs before turning around and heading off to deal with the western threat. Otto's lieutenants held things more or less together from then on, but only just. In the north, the Slavic rebels received aid from Harold Bluetooth, whose invention of a secure form of wireless communication sadly predated electricity by many centuries. For a long time, a huge strip of Saxon territory was occupied by Danish armies, while eastern borderlands suffered through decades of violent unrest and asymmetric warfare. Ultimately, Otto and his lieutenants were able to subdue the rebellion through a deft use of clever diplomacy and massive brutality. In the east, things were settled when one of the tribes that had revolted allied with Otto and turned on their fellow rebels. But ultimately, the war only really wound down in 950, when Otto led an army north into Jutland where, in the grand Carolingian tradition he so loved, he stole all the food and burned all the farms until the Danes were starved into submission. Back in Francia, Otto's intervention had left Louis humbled, and created a real danger that Hugh would start to threaten Otto's interests. Hugh, who had ruled half of Burgundy to begin with, had massively expanded his power and influence north of the Loire, and was basically king in all but name south of it. Louis managed to exacerbate the situation by attempting an invasion of the Duchy of Normandy, where he blundered into an ambush. He was delivered into Hugh's custody by some angry Normans, and Hugh threw him in prison for a year before releasing him on condition that Louis gave him the fortress city of Laon. To understand what a big deal this was, you should understand that Laon was, at this point, Louis's capital. Hugh turned around and gave Laon to his ally, Theobald the Trickster. That's not really important, I just like the name. Hugh was riding high here and began to make some mistakes. For one, he attempted to install his own candidate as bishop, something that was actually not really a big deal at the time, but was technically illegal. More critically, Hugh started to nibble away at lands claimed by Otto. Suddenly, Otto was all about patching up differences within the family. Louis was invited to Otto's court in 947, where Otto got to spend some quality time with his new brother-in-law. Soon thereafter, Louis presented a legal case to Otto, who was, after all, technically his overlord. Hugh was accused of rebelling against his rightful king, even imprisoning him. Oh, and he unlawfully installed a bishop, or whatever. Otto immediately launched a thorough investigation into this truly troubling affair. Bishops were called to a synod, where they threatened to excommunicate Hugh if he did not submit to Louis. Hugh responded by raiding the territories of the bishops who were at the synod, attacking numerous churches, and reportedly slaughtering hundreds of peasants who worked the church-owned lands. Needless to say, Hugh was excommunicated, and combined West and East Francian armies began to invade his territories. 
Hugh actually held out for a long time, but with Otto and the church on Louis's side, Hugh's allies began to flip one by one. The end came in 949, when Theobald the Trickster surrendered the city of Laon to Louis. Hugh and Louis were reconciled a year later. This left things at a sort of three-way balance of power. Louis now exercised authority over the land north of the River Loire, Hugh to the south. Looming to the east was Otto, stronger than either side, but uninterested in further military action in this direction. All of the above is fun, but it boils down to really two things. After roughly 943 or so, Otto's reign was not really confronted by any existential threats. With the Slavs under control and Lorraine reconquered, Otto's domestic enemies were defeated, leaving him to turn his attention to domestic reforms and less pressing security issues. We're going to talk more about Otto's domestic reforms in an upcoming episode, but on the security front, Otto was a fairly busy guy, so I just want to run through a few of the theaters of operation in which Otto operated before 950, just to complete the picture of the kingdom at the halfway point in Otto's rule. First, and most interesting for the listeners of this podcast, good old Rudolf II of Burgundy, who was also king of Italy at one point, died in 937, and Hugh of Provence, who was also king of Italy, attempted to take over, using Hugh's son's marriage to Rudolf's daughter Adelaide as a pretext. Podcast footnote. Hugh of Provence, the guy who was also king of Italy, was not Hugh the Great, who was alive at the same time, and who also had land claims in Burgundy but whom we just discussed in the context of Western Francia. The bishop, Hugh the Great, had attempted to install, which got him excommunicated, that was another Hugh. There was also another Hugh in Swabia, and several others whose geographic location I did not bother to track down. Bottom line, Hugh was a popular name at this time. I guess one might suggest that it was huge. End podcast footnote. Otto moved into Burgundy in support of Rudolf's son, Conrad, who became the new king of Burgundy, but who formally recognized Otto's overlordship. This was the beginning of Burgundy's drift into membership in the eastern Frankish kingdom. For now, though, no need to feel too bad for Sister Adelaide. She was, after all, still married to the future king of Italy, Lothair. Young and healthy guy, always palling around with his friend Berengar. What could go wrong? In the east, Otto confronted the Bohemians. The Bohemians were a fairly well-organized Slavic tribe, who had the benefit of living in a ring of mountains. Henry the Fowler had signed a peace treaty with their good king, Wenceslas. The good king's son had decided to abandon the treaty, and a long border war followed. Armies sent east by Otto were defeated, but mostly the war was one of raids and counter-raids. Ultimately, the war was gaining neither side anything real, and the Bohemians renewed the treaty and became firm allies of the empire by 950. Conspicuously absent in the story are the Magyars, but rest assured, they were still around. I did mention that they had invaded Saxony in 936, attempting to extract money from the new king, but they were driven off. Not content with being driven off, the Hungarians moved into western Francia and raided widely. They came back via northern Italy, where good King Hugh convinced them to attack the Byzantines in southern Italy. They set up camp in the southern Apennines and raided all around Naples until they had gotten their fill of plunder. Then they made their way back home. In 938, another attempt was made on Saxony, but this time units were ambushed and massacred. The main army withdrew to Hungary. After that, the Magyars mainly focused on fighting as 
ahem, mercenaries in Italy or fighting in the Balkans until 947, at which point they began raiding into Bavaria again. This time, however, and in a sign of things to come, the Bavarians replied in kind and attacked the Pannonian Plain. Podcast footnote. You will note that despite the grandiose value attached to the Battle of Riyadh, those pesky Magyars keep attacking Saxony. End podcast footnote. In this episode, we talked about the various challenges Otto faced early in his reign, despite his pretensions to divinely approved kingship. Starting with a revolt by the son of Arnulf the Bad, followed shortly by a Magyar raid, Otto then had to fight Ebenhard, his father's strongest supporter, and two of his own brothers. This series of rebellions eventually pulled in Louis IV of West Francia, who seized a bunch of land in Lorraine, but when Otto allied with Hugh the Great, Louis was nearly destroyed. Ultimately, Hugh got too big for his britches, and Otto and Louis teamed up with the church to knock him down a few pegs. Throw in a few more idioms or metaphors if you'd like. At the same time, a fair portion of Otto's strength was tied up in a long war against the Danes and Wends in the north, and the Bohemians in the east. Ultimately, both these conflicts were resolved either through massive brutality against the Danes, by a mutual loss of interest in the case of the Bohemians, or by a delightful combination of the two in the case of the Wends. The Magyars continued to reign, but the defenses of the German dukes kept getting better and better. Though Saxony was invaded several times, the Magyars were driven off. Even in the other stem duchies, Magyar raids were becoming less frequent, likely due to the availability of much easier pickings in West Francia, Italy, and the Balkans. So, by 950, things were looking pretty okay for Otto. He'd been on the throne for about 14 years, and in that time he had beaten off a variety of internal and external foes. But then, Otto received an interesting letter. Well, it was actually a messenger. I will paraphrase. Dear Otto, said the messenger, I am currently being besieged by a paranoid usurper who killed my husband and father-in-law. His power is flimsy at best, and he is tolerated by the Italian nobility due to his military frailty. My dad, Rudolf II of Burgundy, was a friend of yours, and said you were a pretty cool guy, and you helped out my brother Conrad a few years back, which was pretty nice, even if it was at the expense of my now-dead husband. I'm a beautiful but weak and frail woman who has legal claim to all of Italy, and a large number of well-connected and wealthy supporters. If only a wise and handsome king would come down to Italy and beat up Berengar II for me, I think I would be okay marrying them. Do you know anyone like that? Signed, Adelaide. Otto was... intrigued. To find out what Otto did next, you will need to tune in to the next episode, because that is all for today. Remember to check out the website rate and review us on iTunes, and maybe throw a couple of bucks my way to help buy books and feed Andrew. He doesn't need much. Like most young people, you can just sprinkle crushed ramen in his cage and he'll be happy for most of the day, watching videos on YouTube and making dank memes. So please, give what you can. For now, thanks for listening, and hopefully you'll return for the next episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of Reformation.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.